0: Hey, everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode. This week, I'm joined by fellow podcasters, Jasmine and Camille. They're hosts of the podcast Distrust and Disparities. We're going to be telling you all about their show and the work that they're doing as advocates in the Good Nurse segment. Welcome, ladies. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having
1: (laughs) us.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having us on, Tina. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited about getting to have the discussion about your podcast and all the amazing work that you guys are doing when we get to the good nurse segment. But of course, we can't have good nurse, bad nurse without having a bad nurse. So we have got to get <laughs> through this, this nonsense yeah. first. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So I guess we might as well get started. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this one is a doozy. I was kind of going over my notes before the show, and my husband goes, good grief, that's a complicated story. And I'm like, I know, it's like, you, you get started, and you start you start telling the, the beginning of it. And you tell like, one thing he did, and you think that's the end of it. And you're like, no, right. there's more. And then you just keep going. <laughs> nope, there's more. It's just... It is something else. Yes, let me right. tell you.
1: And Camille was like, "So, uh, Google his picture. Did you uh, Google his picture? And I was like, oh, let me do that real quick. And I was like, oh,
0: gosh. Don't do it before you get right. it. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <"God." laughs> Whatever you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. Do not do not do it before you go to sleep (laughs) if you want to sleep. (laughs) So this is the story of Malcolm Webster. He was born to a former Metropolitan Police fraud squad, which is kind of ironic as we get into the story that he was the fraud squad head. Alexander, isn't that not? I mean, the irony is definitely not lost on me. Mm -hmm. Alexander Robertson Webster He was also born to a nurse, Odette Blewett, on April the 18th in 1959 in Kincardine, Fife. He displayed disturbing tendencies early in life and had a nickname, which was Pyro. And I think that most people listening to this are going to understand What that kind of meant, if you have a nickname Pyro, that's usually going to involve something to do with fires. And he definitely had an interest in fires from a very young age. He would also fake fainting spells. He left school at the age of 15 and then started a pattern of deception by lying about having a cancer. This is a pattern that starts And it just got out of control and he never really was able to rein it back in. you would think
1: that his parents being like the head of a fraud squad and a nurse would, you know, want to check this behavior from the jump, like try to get help. I don't know if his dad was telling him stories about fraud and he was just soaking it up, absorbing it and was like, (laughs) I want to do this, was Mm -hmm. excited versus being scared. But his... Upbringing is just like you said, the making of a, you know, a psycho.
0: <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Instead of it seems as though instead of it being like a cautionary tale, like he he you know heard it and went, oh wow, that's you know terrible. I, that's definitely not what I. It's as if he listened and and was like, oh, hmm. So they got caught here. Maybe this is what they should have done in or, you know, if, in mm-hmm. order to not get caught. I don't know. It yeah. just seems very odd. Super odd, like he's lying and then his mom being a nurse. Yeah, the right, nurse part, mm-hmm. but then like it's like he combined the two fainting, yeah,
1: lying,
2: lying about having cancer. Oh, cancer. <laughs> Maybe that's where the cancer yes. part came in because his mom was a
0: nurse. Right. I was mm-hmm. like, did she do oncology nursing? Maybe hearing stories. Yeah, yeah, mm, interesting. Yeah, so his work history was kind of varied, sort of unremarkable. He did do some stints as a nurse. It was a, a bin man, and this is this is actually over in Scotland. So there are going to be there's going to be some verbiage that people people in the states are probably going to be like, "What is she talking about, <laughs> bin man?" But, but you know what? People listen to this podcast all over the world. I guarantee you, there are people in Scotland that listen to this podcast. In fact, I I did a couple of episodes with a nurse from oh, Scotland wow. several years ago. So they'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> You guys know. Come on. We all have Netflix. We watch we watch shows from all over the world, don't we? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, he was a driver. He was even an office clerk, but he spent some time in at, at a Tawam Hospital in Abu, Dhab- Abu Dhabi that raised the first major red flags for him. So, this is scary knowing what we know about this story. How horrifying is it to think he worked in a children's ward? there were the deaths of 3 children under the age of 6 from cardiac failure. Yeah,
2: It just that uh, part that's
0: kind of scary.
2: It's really scary and it's even scarier that he went to like a whole other country and did this and harmed these children like i guess allegedly. <laughs>
0: mhm. Yeah, because because the thing is they did lead to his forced resignation because of the suspicions they there were they were they suspected that you know these three children under the age of 6 going into cardiac arrest while he's taking care of them huh? there were suspicions but i guess they couldn't prove anything so they just forced him to resign and this this reminds me of uh, several other stories that i've done like this where hospitals will suspect a nurse is doing something like this. And rather than report it to the board or you know make any kind of waves about it, they just kind of quietly have them resign mm-hmm. as opposed to firing them and trying to do a really you know full-blown investigation because that's not going to look good for the hospital. Yeah. And like yeah. you said,
1: they're focusing on the hospital's reputation and not thinking about other people that are potentially going to be harmed by this person, you know, she's going to, whoever, they're going to go somewhere else and, you know, do the same thing, or maybe even do something worse, you know, something more should have been done than a resignation.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunately something that is a pattern that we see a lot, though, with nurses. Now, recently, not so much. But I would say before the past just few years, that was something that we saw a lot with nurses who did ultimately, you know, were ultimately convicted of harming, you know, deliberately harming their patients, that they had done this in the past, Mm. it was suspected or even known there was actual evidence that was just sort of like swept under the rug and they were just kind of asked to move on and because they just didn't want, you know, the bad publicity for the Mm -hmm. hospital. Kind of scary. So apparently he had a girlfriend at the time. Her name was Beth Brown she claims that that he I told her about about this, uh, these deaths. So you have like an eyewitness. The thing is, like, I know people can, especially if you break up, you know, pe- people can say whatever they want to. But how common is it for children under the age of six to die, to die from a cardiac arrest? I mean, so it's not like it was just her saying that she. You know, is saying that, but then you also do have these deaths that occurred. Apparently, it, there was a rumor that his father kind of used his influence to help him evade, you know, any further scrutiny as well with him being tied to the police force. Wow, mm-hmm. and it's like you know, your
1: child is doing this to children, harming children, and you don't want him to be take action for his what he's doing. You help him to avoid arrests and prosecution. Like, no, uh, uh-uh. uh. like you should have been disciplining him as a child. Your child, why would you want your child to be known as
0: pyro? Like, <laughs> like, no, <laughs> like. Maybe that kind of answers some of our questions yeah. earlier too about, yeah. you know, how does he turn out this way if he has parents in the police force or, or that's a nurse. But if I, you know, if they're kind of raising him to be narcissistic and hide, any, you know, any flaws or help him cover up his wrongdoings, then I guess that's our answer, right? Yeah. So in September 1993, he married a woman by the name of Claire Morris. Just eight months into the marriage, he executed a sinister plan. So right after they married, he took out several life insurance policies on her. Then, on a rural road in Aberdeenshire, he drugged her with temazepam, staged a car crash, and used gasoline to ignite the vehicle, um, burning her alive. The police, deceived by his story of avoiding a motorcyclist, did not suspect foul play. He then claimed and squandered two hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand pounds from all of the life insurance policies that he had. He spent all of that money on things like a yacht, a Range Rover. I mean, this was in the 90s. So that was a significant amount of money.
2: You just got married. You're not even like at the year mark. And someone's already gone like, let's take out life insurance policies. That is like the biggest red flag of Mm -hmm. run, run for your life because they're trying to take it. Because then I'm also wondering, too, like, I don't know how life insurance policies work, especially in like a spousal situation. Well, no, because like I've even I have life insurance and like you have to be there signing the documentation. Oh, but maybe because his dad was the fraud squad head, he knew how to fraudulently sign documents. Because I don't see how a wife would have like signed out multiple
0: unless she was just convinced that like, oh, yeah, we should we should do that. Yeah, and I think that he was very, as a lot of psychopaths mm-hmm. are, he was very charming mm-hmm. and was just able who, who I mean, who knows if if he was just like, We should both get life insurance policies on each other. Mm. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I just feel like some people are just so good at just coming across like they have your best interest in mind. Yeah. You know? And mm-hmm. also the investigation too, like just one
1: person, you know, dies at the scene. You would think if the car is on fire and things like that and he's trying to, you know, save her or something like that, he would have, like, maybe some burns or different things. It's just the investigation. I don't know. I'm, like, suspicious of, like Camille was saying, one year of marriage and then you suddenly just die and things like that. Where was the motorcyclist? You know, I just have so many questions. Like, how did he just get off and then... All of a sudden you just spend all this money on like extravagant cars and like things like that. I'm like, that's
0: strange. (laughs) There were some people that had suspicions, an off-duty policeman and a firefighter. They doubted his story. They did say that they felt like there was a lack of effort on his part to rescue her they also talked about the fact that the skid marks weren't there and you would expect that if he's going along at a certain rate of speed mm-hmm. and he has, to, he has he sees a motorcycle and he has to slam on his brakes that there would be skid marks. And so to them, they, they were suspicious. There was also a, a nurse who was a friend of Claire's who said that she had, before this happened, had been in a similar accident with Malcolm. Mm. In other words, they had been in another kind of like Car accident that seemed sort of similar that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. Yeah. So they're they're kind of talking amongst themselves, but nothing ever came of it. the The police that actually made the decision whether or not to call it an accident or or further investigate, they decided it was an accident. Wow, it's just too many coincidences.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Who ends up in a near death accident twice within less than a year? Your wife is in the car, like. <laughs> too many holes too many
0: gaping holes and they were just like oh no that's it it's fine I know and we're not we've barely scraped the surface of the gaping holes in his right. stories and and of the <laughs> co- of the strange coincidences and near-death experiences because he quickly decided after Claire died that he was going to move on he started dating a woman uh, by the name of Brenda Grant. While in Saudi Arabia, this man got around. He really traveled. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, no, I mean, no kidding. So with her, he kept lying as usual. Making he made up a story with her that he had leukemia. (laughs) So what I what I kind of figure is that what he did is he's like, oh, I'm sick, I'm gonna die. I want to take out a life insurance policy so that when I'm gone, you'll be taken care of. Oh, by the way, let's do one on you. I mean, you mm. never know. So that's, I feel like that's sort of this weird conversation that this, you know, very charming, psychopathic person who knows how to manipulate people. I just feel like it was something like yeah, that. Yeah. That seems like about right. Cause I was questioning that. I'm like, why is you know
1: if he's the sick person why is his wife or spouse why is she also taking a policy out but if he's like convincing he's like you know just do you as well just sign
0: right here well why not hey we're already here we might as well Mm -hmm. gonna have one why not have two right Mm. so five years after claire had died in auckland new zealand he married again jet setting all over the world he married a woman by the name of Felicity Drum. She was pregnant at the time with his child. Mm-hmm. He repeated his lethal pattern. He drugged her in an attempt to kill her, but she survived. So, you know, we talked about the first story where it seems as though maybe he tried to kill her, you know, with the car accident it didn't, and it failed and then ultimately it did work. And then that's how he got the life insurance policy. But it seems like something like this sort of happened with this woman, Felicity he had already drained their savings. They had like something like 140,000 New Zealand dollars and <sighs> they were on their way in the car to their accountant's office where he was about to be found out. She was going to find out that all of her money had was gone. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like he just kind of like, okay, every I've got to make, this is all got to happen quickly. Right. And he was like, "Oh, I've lost control of the car. I, 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 I don't know what's happening. I can't." And you know, he's like, "Oh, <laughs> I just want to be like, well, take your foot right. off the gas pedal, number <laughs> one." But they're just yes. going as fast as they can down the road, and then he's veering toward a pole oh, on my. her side of the car. <laughs> Jeez! Oh my goodness! Yeah, and you know that. The thing is that she he, she had been drugged and the only reason she woke up is because her cell phone started ringing and it woke her up and she realized and she was like, what is going on? And he was like, oh, the car, it's, you know, I, I can't control it. Well, she grabbed the steering wheel and they still mm. wrecked, but they weren't, no one was injured. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thank goodness. Well, here's the thing though. He jumped out of the car and he, re- he was like, stay in the car, stay in the car. He like yelled at her to stay in the car. He ran around to the trunk of the car and she wasn't sure what he was doing, but the police got there very quickly. So whatever it was he was doing, he wasn't able to actually do. Mm. Well, he kind of faked like some chest pain and she was like, oh, let's get you to the hospital. So they went to the hospital and then they never, you know, they ended up not going to the accountant's you know, mm. office that day, which he got his way there. Mm. Well, later on, they do f- discover that there were like big cans of gasoline and a lighter in the trunk of that car. Wow! Oh. <laughs> what is what this wow. pie? Well, kind of tells what you is. what happened with the first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. He was planning on getting yep. in,
1: staging that accident and then lighting the car mm-hmm. on fire.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, she and- she questioned him. She, she was just she was like, you know. Cause she kind of had that. She tasted like this weird, bitter taste in her mouth, and she's, I guess, sort of like playing all of this back. And she was like, "Did you? I feel like you. You know, I would have died. I, I, I'm, I'm almost thinking maybe you intended to kill me." And he said, "Well, you would have died happy." That was her, his response to her. <laughs>
2: died (laughs) she's pregnant by the way like I'm thinking back to like this is she's pregnant met your wife and you're like you would have died happy in a terrible car accident Uh, this
1: man is deranged and he's Mm -hmm. admitting that he is you know he's intentionally trying to you know kill her and basically take her take her money and
0: you would think the story would end here like, no, you would think, <laughs> but no, because because he realized the police were looking at you know looking at him, and so he fled the country. Wow. <sighs> so he met he met another woman. He just continues woman after woman. He turned his sights onto a woman by the name of Simone Benagerie and convinced her again. Once again, he kind of re- brings back this leukemia thing. Tells her he has le- terminal leukemia, and. Talked her into writing a will and putting him in the will. He was still married. Oh, he was still wow. married to Felicity. Oh, so <laughs> You can't be married to multiple yeah. people. And hey, how are you?
2: That's not that's not a legitimate marriage,
1: yeah. right? How are you ju- convincing women over and over to put you in their will? Like, how is this conversation? You just working this up? I guess like the leukemia and it's like. Put me in your will, like I like Mm -hmm. this games that he's running and convincing women to put them in their will. So, ladies, if a guy's bringing up, you know, oh, let's do wills, let's do this. I have a, -mm. a, you know, a chronic illness. Like, go to the go to the doctor's appointments,
0: see the paperwork, (laughs) everything. We all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters, and it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault, the dosage is the problem. This is why CBDstat only makes high dose CBD products that actually work, and now their products are getting even stronger. CBDstat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. Remember the yacht that he that he bought with like one of his other relationships. He was apparently planning a an extended yacht trip with his This new love of his life, Simone, mm. they were supposed to go on this, like, really long trip out in the ocean, and they were going to be gone for a long time. I have a feeling he was not thinking that Simone was going to be coming mm. back. No. She Probably was not. going to be... Because he's having her... yeah, Yeah.
2: Killed, and then she was going to be in the ocean, and she was never going to be found. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, he's so devious. Yeah, it was just a tragic accident. Yeah, just a tragic accident. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Mm. So... His other relationships included a teenage girl oh. who apparently had an abortion, a woman who later took her own life and a married woman. He avoided forming any ties that didn't serve his financial interest. I mean, he was, the. the I told you guys when we started this story, <laughs> it's one thing after another. He just like, his whole life was just barreling through and just taking out anybody in his that's in his way.
1: Yeah, just yeah. lying and scheming, and you know, just targeting women to you know mm-hmm. get what he want And
0: mm. yeah, and it's so sad because he obviously had some kind of way of coming across to to cer- uh, you know certain type of women. I'm sure he tried this on certain you know women mm-hmm. that would not fall for it, but. Once he once he came across that certain personality type, and he saw that they were kind of getting sucked in. He had him, and he knew mm-hmm. he had him
1: because yeah. he was
0: that good. He was an actor, you know, mm-hmm.
1: and playing on like that illness, like that threat of like leukemia.
2: People who do that usually they know their target audience. They know the vulnerable people. They know people who are a little bit more naive and they go after them in such a specific yeah. way. And a lot of times other people who wouldn't be as vulnerable or like, how could you fall for it? Where it's just like, they're they're being targeted. You were never gonna be a target because you probably would have seen through his nonsense and then like, get away from me. Like, what are you talking about life insurance? Mm-hmm
0: yeah that you know Claire, the first woman that we talked about that he that he married, her brother, I saw an interview with him and it was it's so sad. He obviously loved his sister very much, but he said that he would notice that Malcolm would would do things like you know, tell her to take her hands out of her pockets and that sort of thing, and she would actually do it, and he would just be shocked because normally she she would not. Mm-hmm take anything Mm. from anybody. She was very self-assured. She was a nurse herself Mm. and kind of a very strong woman. And so it shocked him that she somehow came, you know, just fell under his spell. It's, it's, it's really inexplicable, you know, just to how that would have happened. But, you know, someone who, and it's really sad to think, you know, that, that someone's sister, you know, that she's someone's sister, she's someone's, daughter, she's you know, <laughs> someone's friend, she's someone's cousin, you know, and and all the people around her couldn't do anything about it. They could uh, see uh the manipulation, you know, they could <laughs> see something was not, you know, quite right. But what What are you going to do? He
1: must have been very manipulative and controlling. And with the whole saying he has like a chronic illness, probably playing that up and, you know, just pulling on the strings, especially if you're a nurse, you're so, so easy to get sucked into that caregiving role and, you know, putting other people first. And, you know, he just took advantage of that
0: and, you know, killed people. And it's just sad. Well, in 2008, they launched an operation called Operation Field. They really focused in on him. Simone Benarji's home was searched, leading to the discovery of embezzled funds, a stolen laptop, and an unlicensed gun, which this is in New Zealand. So Mm. this is not in the United States of America. (laughs) So (laughs) the investigation reopened the case of claire morris's death so we're going all the way back now to that suspicious death that was ruled an accident and there were people her family and friends that were pushing for them to reopen this case and there were people there were investigators that really wanted to but they needed something they needed a catalyst they needed something that would kind of shine a light on it and so this this sort of helped nudge that in the right direction And that led to charges against him for her murder. So also the attempted murder of Felicity Drum and his bigamous intentions with Mm Benarji. So after a five-year investigation with countless interviews, Malcolm was convicted on May the 19th in 2011 at the High Court of Justiciary in Glasgow in Scotland's longest ever criminal trial with a single accused. He received a life sentence with a minimum of 30 years and was removed from the nursing register, which I'm glad right. to hear. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Every Take now and then license. you hear about people
0: who have done things and you're just like, yeah, why are they still on? How are they still have their license? It's frustrating. Well, to work. <laughs> yeah. Doctors too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> i just like, are you kidding me? Wow. There was kind of a fight over her headstone because her family did not, her brother in particular, did not want his name on her headstone. So they kind of went through the court system and fought over that, and they were able to get that replaced after a legal debate. After he was convicted, thank goodness. Yeah, I I, I can't imagine. You know, there's things like that that we don't think about. Mm-hmm. You know, think about from from a family's perspective. You have a victim of a violent crime. If it was a spouse that killed, you know, killed their spouse. Mm-hmm. But they were still their spouse. And so they had their last name and now their last name is on the headstone. I mean, yeah, that's sort of just a, a kick in the gut, you know, just to yeah. have that. So I could, I, it's something I just hadn't thought of before.
2: It's so layered where like, you don't think about it until you're in it of, oh, wait a second, the spouse of my loved one murdered them. And now I have to stare at their name the entire time. Like whenever I go and visit the grave and it's, or the fact too that it finally took, he got convicted and then to go through a legal battle just to get the headstone replaced. Like, why am I fighting a system to be like, you need to remove this. It should have been as soon as he was convicted. It's like y'all do whatever y'all want with that tombstone. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Why would you have to jump through so many hoops and, you know, before he was convicted, just thinking him being like the narcissist and, you know, manipulator, he's probably like controlling things of like the funeral and stuff like that. And like you said, like the headstone and things like that. So I can imagine being very like frustrated with him and just angry, especially if you have like suspicion, like, you know, how did she die? You know, what's going on? So.
0: Yeah. Well, he did try to appeal his conviction. He lost in 2016. He's had a quite quite a difficult life, as you can imagine, in prison, mm-hmm. marked by attacks and isolation. There are reports he paid another prisoner to keep him safe and has accepted the fact that he's probably gonna spend the rest of his life in prison. And I would say that's probably true and deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Like
1: yes. you were only convicted of, you know, killing one person and attempting to kill like two others, but who knows how many other people you have killed and you know, robbing, scheming, and all that other stuff. So, you know, you, you have the rest of your life to think about all that you did.
0: So, I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. If you're like me and you don't want ads interrupting your podcast flow, you can access our episodes ad-free just by becoming a patron. You can also have access to bonus material like episodes being released early, the video footage of me and my guests recording the episode, and a brand new podcast that's offered exclusively to our Patreon subscribers called Breakroom Conversations. Your support will really help us to keep the podcast running smoothly. To learn more, just head on over to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com, and click the link to become a patron. Well, I guess that wraps up our bad nurse story. So we can get to talking about our good nurses. So excited to get to talk about this. So I said nurses, but really Jasmine is a nurse. Camille is in HR. So they decided to do this podcast together, which is really cool. And I'm just going to let them tell you about themselves and about their podcast.
1: I am Jasmine. I'm a registered nurse and I co-host it with my best friend Camille. I think we've been friends for over like 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> and um the name of our podcast is called Distrust and Disparities: Voices from the Margins of Healthcare. So We release episodes twice a month on the first and the third, and we talk about cases of medical injustices and health disparities. So we look at a specific topic or a specific case, and we just... Break down like the systemic barriers and just like the racist policies that are going on. And then some of the topics that we cover include things like the Black paternal mortality crisis. We look at kidney disease, sickle cell disease, diabetes. And then, in addition to talking about the disparities, we talk about an organization that is. Working to dismantle the practices in place, grassroots organizations, individuals, just working to improve the health outcomes for, you know, marginalized communities, specifically Black women and Black families. <laughs> Is distress and disparities dismantling
2: Black house disparities? We sort of, like, found that and navigated to that after putting out, like, several episodes. But it was, like, we were always having these conversations since we've been friends for so long. Jasmine would talk about her nursing experience. And then I think, too, with you having been a nurse for several years in Baltimore, and then you ended up going for travel nursing in Connecticut, it was, like, the discrepancies were so... Obvious, and it was so frustrating when you have different, either historical events and then also just everyday, like present stories that continue to happen where Black people aren't trusted, believed, treated well in the healthcare system. And we always like point out, like, it all stems from racism in this country and how it's embedded in healthcare. It, you know, was the reason that certain departments or things were created, like even we talk about like James Marion Sims and gynecology. So like it has a deep history and it continues To affect people, and we just want to highlight when, you know, hey, this is what's happening. We want to educate people so then that they could be better advocates for themselves when they're in a situation where they're not being believed or listened to in a, a medical healthcare setting. And then point out, like, oh, maybe if you're in this area, you can go to this organization and they'll be helpful. To you and make sure that, like, you're getting the care that you deserve because, like, we're human beings. We all deserve good health care. It's like that's just a simple thing that,
0: like, unfortunately is not met every single day. Well, I think that there are a lot of people who don't really understand when you say disparities or when you talk about these things. I think there are a lot of people that, if they don't experience it or if they don't see it themselves, they don't believe it happens. And I that that's why I think it's so important to talk about it and discuss it. And for people to keep an open mind and let people tell their experience and let their experience be their truth and not try to impose your own perspective because my perspective is so different from someone else's. So I I can look, you know, from my perspective, I can look around and say, well I don't now, I can't say this because I, I've worked at a level one trauma center. I've experienced, I've witnessed things that I never would have thought of would have witnessed before I became a nurse. But if I have that, if I have one perspective and 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 I'm just going, well, I don't see this going on. I don't see that going on. I treat, you know, all people the same. and So then it's like they just, and I don't know that everyone means to necessarily have bad intentions when they do this it's almost as if if they acknowledge that it happens, it somehow convicts them. Mm-hmm. I just hope that people will not see it that way. And just stop and listen to what people you know, are saying. Number one, I was 40 years old when I went to nursing school. And so there I was so I lived in a bubble. I did not there was so much going on in the world. Yeah. I was just being a mom and raising my children. And it didn't, there was so much that was going on, that I had no idea I was never sick, never was never in the hospital. I didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> I mean, there was so much I didn't know that I go to, to school. And I my eyes were just open to so many different things. And one of the things that were was just really shocking to me as I started working at this really large hospital uh, was that i witnessed racism firsthand and i had had not that I'd never seen it before but it not so blatant and i think it was it was shocking as a, in a, a you know an adult woman who was kind of under the impression that we had we'd moved beyond all of that and we're all mm-hmm. you know these civilized people now who that all happened hundreds of years ago and it, I just remember just just it was like a kick in the, the gut like my, I don't know. Just being disillusioned can be very disturbing and unsettling, and it's hard to accept sometimes. Yeah. for people, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like that. Your reality is not your what you thought. Right, it
1: was. and it's like, what do you do in that situation? Because a lot of times, the person who maybe say somebody says something biased, yeah. like something as slight as you know, they need to learn how to speak English or something like that. And, you know, they Mm -hmm. feel comfortable saying these things and you're like, why are you saying this? Or, you know, they say maybe something biased, something Mm -hmm. racist, and, you know, it just continues. Say it's like a a big doctor and nobody wants to confront him. Or even you go to your nurse manager, you tell tell them and they're like, oh, that's just him, you know, you know that's just what he does. So nothing gets done. And so like these little instances, they kind of like fester and, you know, it just creates like this culture. And, you know, we talk about this on our podcast, like people who face like these situations and you know how they stood up how they advocated and you know what they do so you know what to do in this situation how to navigate it you know where to turn cuz it's it's uncomfortable for everyone in the situation so it's just like we created this podcast so we can discuss it you know cuz a lot of times we'll have these conversations amongst ourselves and then it doesn't you know nothing changes it's just like this is just the status quo but it's like no, this shouldn't be. We need to something else needs to be done.
0: Yeah, I think the more discussions like this that you have, the the better it will get because people may here the thing that I want people to realize, and and for you guys to realize too, is that the, you have people who are just like I am, like I was, who are just kind of ignorant of things, really, just ignorant of reality, that are just going along and they say things that are well intentioned and. They are just ignorant. I mean, they're, they're not they don't have bad intentions. They just don't get it. So but the more conversations like this that you have, then you kind of help peel away at the layers, especially if you do it with kindness, and patience kind of being patient with people. So one of the first experiences that I had as a nurse was when I became a team leader. The first couple of years as a nurse on the floor, I was very self-absorbed because I was just, you know, so like new and everything was just like trying to not kill people. You know, it was just so overwhelming. But Then when I became a team leader, kind of had to look outward to everyone. And a CNA came to me one day and said, they don't want me to go back in their room because I'm black. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, I was just completely... I couldn't even wrap my head around how in the world someone said that Mm -hmm. to her. I was so furious for one thing, because she was like the sweetest woman. I was just so just like horrified. And then I was just like, the first thing I said was, do you want to go back in the room? (laughs) Because that was my first, I was just like, wait a minute, they're not going to tell you you can't go back in the room. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to go back in the room, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't want to go back in the room. I'm like, then don't go back in the room. Mm-hmm. But I'll go in there. And, I, you know, and I went back in there and I was like, you know, I just, and I I said, you know, I, I was talking to, and I don't want to say her name, but, you know, I was talking to your CNA and and they just literally admitted it. I couldn't even believe it. They didn't even try to hide it. I, I fully expected to have a confrontation or there to be some sort of misunderstanding or like somehow something was said that or at least they were going to try to twist it that way and no that was literally what they said and i was just like okay first of all you don't get to say that mm-hmm. you don't get to you don't get to have that you know you don't get to make that decision because this is a hospital. And if you want to be cared for, you are going to be cared for by the people that we have to care for you. I mean, it would be different if it was if it had to do with, you know, your religion, if it had to do with, you know, gender, and you weren't, you know, you weren't comfortable, we would, that's different. You're not going to tell somebody that you're not going to say, they're not going to take care of me for that reason. That being said, now, she isn't going to take care of you, because she doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to come in here. Not because just let's, I just want to make sure this is clear. It has nothing to do with you saying it's because she doesn't want to take care of you. So, and that is her right because she is, because you, you know, disrespected her and that, you know, so that is totally her choice. That just, that one experience opened my eyes to, to just that people are that way. And they think Mm -hmm. that way. And all of a sudden, it just like, I don't know, it just changed my whole perspective. I, I just started seeing things differently. I started seeing people differently. I don't know, just like everything. And it, it helped me in a lot of ways. It taught me so much. I learned so much from that experience. And it, what it really helped me to do was to think about the situations that are that are more gray, because that one was kind of easy. That was that was such a softball, Mm -hmm. there was no, you know, gray area. But it helped, you know what I mean, it Mm -hmm. helped me to think about, oh, my gosh, if this person would just be so blatant and come right out and say that I need to be really careful and like, listen to people if they if, if they're saying you know, that they're feeling these subtle, you know, things can be so subtle. People are so, you know, how they are. They can be passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. They can Mm -hmm. hint. I mean, as a woman, I know, I know how men are. They can do these things. They can be very subtle. They can make innuendos. They can just say things that make you feel icky. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is exactly the same way that i I experienced this as a woman people can experience this from a completely different like perspective based on their skin color, based on if they come from a different, you know, speak a different language and, or English is their second language. And so maybe, you know, they have an accent. So all of those experiences just, it helped me have more empathy. Mm -hmm. You should definitely check out like our podcast, those of you who are listening,
1: because we talk about a variety of cases and um like you were saying, explaining like those microaggressions, like it's been times where clearly got on like nursing badge, nursing scrubs and people like, are you the secretary? Are you the aid, the help and things like that? And even the case where like, you know, can I get somebody else to help me? And I'm like, you know, why do you need somebody else to help me? Like you're in my zone, like I'm here to care for you. And kind of just kind of like you know, have to go above and beyond to prove that you're qualified to, you know, take care of like a family and they're just looking at like your skin color and things like that and just trying to discredit you. And we also talk about things in our system, like systemic racism and things like that. We did an episode talking about kidney disease. And if you notice for all like the healthcare professionals, if you look at your GFR, there's like a category where it's like your there's like African American GFR. So they have like this specific calculation. And we did a specific case how this one woman, she could not get approved to get a kidney transplant because they were using this antiquated African American GFR. But if they,
0: if are they. Are you look- kidding me? Wait, wait, what are you saying? I had no idea. I've seen this for years and I never even understood. Yes the implications.
1: So I'm I'm trying to pull up the episode but if you go to our page it's and look up like kidney disease so mm-hmm. they have a regular GFR and that just looks at your kidney filtration and then they have the African American GFR so they use this formula. So they did a study and they noticed with African Americans specifically that their GFR was just always a little bit higher, but they couldn't figure out why. So they even thought like, oh, African-Americans, they have more muscle mass, they're stronger, which is also kind of rooted in like, oh, you think, you know, African-Americans are just strong and different things like that. So they couldn't figure out what specifically was causing the GFR to be a little bit higher. So they were like, okay, we'll just create a separate rate for African-Americans and they just adopted this practices. I mean, adopted this practice. So if you go look at like lab results right now, you'll see GFR and then African American GFR. Like most hospitals have not discontinued this. And so many people with kidney disease, earlier the better. So if we can get you on dialysis early, if we can get you a transplant, you know, that'll prevent further complications. But a lot of times for African-Americans, it's like, I don't qualify. And then add in, I believe it was one case, if you're a mixed race, like, do I go by black? Do I go by white? If I pick, if I select that I'm white, I'll meet this qualification. But if I say I'm black, I don't meet it. So it's like, this is so Whoa. out. Dated. And it's like so many things like that. Even when they talk about risk for pregnancy, they do like a extra thing for like black women. So it's like some of these little equations and things like that. It's like, why are we talking about this? And I'm researching an episode now just about like pulse socks. Like, that's a common thing that we do. But if you're of darker skin, the results are a little bit skewed. So it's like, what are we doing to kind of address this? Because, you know, during the COVID pandemic, is showing up that your, you know, your oxygen is normal. But if you look at them, how they're presenting clinically, you know, they're labored breathing, think labored breathing and things like that. And it was like with the medication, the antiviral that they were given for COVID, you didn't qualify because your pulse ox was in a higher range, or you weren't putting on, you weren't being put on like say a CPAP, BiPAP, you weren't getting these interventions that are needed. So it's like so many little things. And even myself, I'm like learning and looking up things and it helps me with my practice and, you know, just to be able to talk and just share these things and just to learn like what is being done? Like who is, what are we doing to address these situations? Cause it's like improving the outcomes for, you know, say marginalized communities, to people that are being discriminated, it'll, everybody will benefit. You know, it's not like we're going to take away from another group. It's like more resources are going to be pulled and it's going to improve our overall health. And I talked to Camille, you know, healthcare during the pandemic, we learned we needed to change so many things, but we didn't. But, you know, the push is to improve health care for all. So we're focusing on, you know, African-Americans. But if we improve those results, say even, let's say, Black maternal health outcomes, even in the U.S. for regular women, it's still pretty dangerous and unsafe. So if we can improve it for, you know, Black women, everybody is going to benefit.
0: Yeah. Well, and if you think about the reason for the disparities, it's just typically because they're not believed when they say they're in pain. Mm -hmm. A lot of Mm -hmm. it goes back to them, you know, they just, for whatever reason, it's just, it's hard to understand like why, why that is, how is that, how does that permeate through an entire system? Mm -hmm. But it does. And it has, and we've seen it. There's so many stories out there that you can't deny it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, because we
2: always talk about that of like, it is it is born out of racism because the system was built in that way of like, Black people feel pain differently. And like, they've continued to sort of do polls and studies of current medical students, like really recent medical students that are like, oh yeah, no, Black people do feel pain differently. And it's just like, what are you learning? Like, why is this being taught? Why are you thinking in that way? Or a lot of times the there's the automatic assumption if a Black person shows up to a hospital asking for some sort of pain medication. Some could even have a whole doctor's note that explains whatever it is that they do have that they need specific pain drugs. There's an automatic assumption from a lot of people that are like, oh, you're an addict and you're just here trying to get your fix instead of a more thorough eval of them to be like, okay, so what are your symptoms? What is the pain scale? A lot of people, and I think the issue too with that, people look at it as like these little one-off anecdotal moments that like don't show the larger, bigger picture of it's happening everywhere. And it's happening to a lot more people than people really fully understand. And it can be really frustrating when you feel like you're all alone. Like we talk about sickle cell disease and that is more prevalent in the African-American community. And the pain that people experience is tremendous. And a lot of times you'll talk to many of people that have sickle cell anemia and they're like, I'm not believed. I have a whole pain management care that I have from my doctor and I show up someplace and they're just like, "Mm, are you sure? Are you, mm, I don't know, this seems like a lot. Or it's like what we discuss of like, they're not presenting outwardly that they're in such severe pain, but it's just like, they've known this all their life. So like, they've kind of gotten used to existing in that way and they sort of hold it all in and hold it together. But like, they're not lying. And there is an automatic assumption a lot of times that they are and they're they're just there to get drugs. And it's just like, people are showing up, especially in emergency rooms in their most vulnerable states. And it, it's even more disheartening when it's just like I'm mm-hmm. here because I have to be, and you still don't believe me. You still think I'm I'm full of it, that I'm lying, that I'm I'm trying to game the system. And it's just like I'm here for your help. And like it'd be great if like you just help me and you believe me and you listen to me.
0: Yeah, that there's such a contrast there because you have Our emergency departments are absolutely overrun in the United States. We have so many people that have to go to the emergency department for basically for primary care because they don't have access to healthcare. Otherwise, then you have legitimate emergencies. You have people who end up in emergency departments because they can't afford the medications that they need to be able to keep their chronic conditions under control. So they end up in these acute exacerbations. And the cycle is insane. So people that work like Jasmine that work in these emergency rooms are so incredibly stressed out. They're mm-hmm. under, they, they're understaffed. They don't have enough people taking care of these people that these, there are patients just out the door. And so their compassion is like, you know, this it's like the thickness of the, the that tissue paper, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> that you put stuff into the gift bags. It's just not there. It tears very easily. So then you couple that with, we do have a problem in this country also, also with opioid addictions, with substance use disorder. And we, unfortunately, we, we don't, our mental health resources are almost non-existent. And so we have people that do go to ERs that are trying to get medication to help them with their substance use problems. So man, you put that together and it is a terrible combination for somebody who legitimately is walking in there in in legitimate pain. Mm -hmm. What I try to do every chance I get on this podcast is to whenever especially when we talk about sickle cell, I've taken care of I worked on a progressive care unit for for years and Take care of a lot of people with sickle cell in, in an acute exacerbation. It is so incredibly painful. Look mm-hmm. it up, guys, mm-hmm. look it up, look up sickle cell and do a legitimate research on it and read about it. And I guarantee you it will change. It will help you be more empathetic I get it. I hear. I hear what people say, and I I don't want to discount like the, the people who work in the ERs and the, the the nurses at the bedside who get frustrated. But I also, as a nurse, get frustrated when I hear people say things like, "Well, they're just in there scrolling on their phone; they're not really hurting." Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, people have different ways of coping, you know. And I'm I'm not trying to be Little Miss Squeaky Halo, and I you know I'm just perfect. I don't mean that, but I do try to remind try to remind you, you know, just like have compassion. Please don't assume people are lying if they, you know, they come in there and say they're, and they're saying they're in pain. But here's one way that you really, you know, if you see an African-American, African-American per person come in to your ER who does have a history of sickle cell and they say they're in pain, that should be a red flag that they really are in pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that right there, sickle cell disease is something I don't think I've ever taken care of a patient that wasn't African-American that had sickle cell. If you look it up the exacerbations that can happen they're so painful and the pain is really 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 difficult to get under control
2: Mm -hmm.
0: once it gets out of control so it is so important that if they have a pain regimen that you follow that because if they get off if they uh, you guys know this Mm -hmm. we've learned this (laughs) in nursing school you know this to be true if you let that get out of control it's almost impossible yeah to get that pain level back down and
1: we did an episode and like you said You could even listen to the episode or, like you said, research sickle cell, listen to patients describe what they're going through. And so many patients, they know that they're going to face discrimination in the ED, so they're like... Let me hold off let me make sure I get dressed. Let me l- make sure I look presentable. I'm not going to go to the ED in the middle of the night because they know like that's when maybe people come in seeking drugs. You know, I'm going to wait, hold off as long as I can before really yeah. seeking Don't wear your Cookie treatment. Monster pajama bottoms. Yes, like let yeah. me present myself. Let yeah. me make sure I have all my documentation and things like that. And, you know... There needs to be more education on sickle cell. Even doctors need to know because they have like what they need. And you look at the paper like, oh, this is an insane amount of pain medication, but this is what they need to manage their crisis to reach a comfortable level. And it's like, why are you questioning this? You know, I had a doctor. We have regular people who, regulars who come into the emergency department with sickle cell crisis and we know what they need and they order like a small amount of pain medication and you know it's not going to do anything you ask them like you know they normally get this why are you starting with this and they're like no just give them with that like you said they're just on their phone and you they're like see how they respond to that so it's like it's just like a waiting game waiting game and they're just uncomfortable and it's it's torture
0: I will say also doctors and and nurse practitioners and PAs, they're being targeted yeah. by our federal government for the overprescribing of opioid and pain medications. And so that makes it difficult on them yeah. as well. I-, I don't know what in the world we're going to do in this country because we are an absolute mess when it comes to health <laughs> I know.
1: Yeah. So it's just,
0: <laughs> like I said,
1: on our episode, we try to talk about like, what are people doing to kind of advocate? for specifically for sickle cell patients we talked about the group sick cells they provide education how people can enroll in studies and things like that what they can do to manage like a crisis and things like that when they go to the emergency department you know what they need to do but yeah so many things <laughs> need to be fixed in healthcare, and you know you know, starting small and, you know, tackling one thing at a time, but, you know, ignoring it, ignoring, you know, things such as racism, sweeping it under the rug, like microaggressions, you know, nothing is going to change. We're spending so much money on healthcare and the health outcomes are, you know, abysmal. So it's just like something needs to be done. Like, to be fixed and even with your podcast talking about doctors and nurses who are committing crimes killing people but are still allowed to work like we need to bring awareness to that like something needs to be done (laughs) so hopefully people feel comfortable reporting these doctors and nurses because there's a pattern you see them doing certain things and you know not doing their job and you know you just kind of sweep it under the rug but you know you need to take a stand and stand up for that.
0: Well, remind everybody the name of your podcast so they can go find it and subscribe and listen to it. So
2: our podcast is called Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities. And we're on various social media channels. And we have new episodes on the first and third Friday of every month. And you can even check us out at just- distrustanddisparities.com because we also, you know, ask people if you have like recommendations of disparities that you think that we should talk about topics, even guests we should interview who are doing work of what we're talking about of helping improve health outcomes. You can visit us there.
0: But yeah, we have new episodes on the first and third Friday of every month. It's wonderful. I love the work that you're doing. Keep it up. I'd love to have you come back and we can talk about... There's actually... I've done a lot of stories about different kinds of situations that involve disparities, but one in particular, I don't know if you've tackled this or not, but corrections Mm. there. Mm. That's that's one area and not even just corrections. You've got corrections, EMS situations, all kinds Mm -hmm. of, oh my goodness. So we did do a
2: story about a really terrible like paramedic situation. And I think we're going to like maybe next year tackle the
0: corrections thing, but yeah, we would definitely love to be back to discuss those. I've done a few of those stories. I remember going on and just researching it and I got overwhelmed and just disgusted because there are a lot of them out yeah. there. I, mm-hmm. I had to do like an episode where I like hit on a bunch of different ones because there were so wow. many mm-hmm. of them. So we just kind of we we kind of talked about how it's this much of a problem that, he, you know, here's, here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another mm-hmm. one. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We really
1: appreciate it.
0: And of course you guys know, you can find me at nurse, com. You can email me at Tina at goodnursebadnurse nurse, and I'm on social media at goodnursebadnurse too. Guess what? And of course, before we leave, I have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.